It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 21, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Linda Chapman of Harvest Moon Flower Farm in southern Indiana. Harvest Moon is a two and a half acre flower farm run by Linda and a very small crew. They market flowers through farmers markets, a business subscription program, and weddings in the Bloomington and Indianapolis markets. In this episode, we're going to talk about some great practical flower farming information from weed control to bouquet construction, as well as Linda's labor situation and her plans for transitioning the farm to a new generation. This was a fun episode to record. I hope you enjoy it. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. No matter your level of experience, Fertrell has the products and knowledge to help you grow healthy, natural plants and animals. Fertrell.com. Welcome to the podcast, Linda. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for, for joining us here on this June afternoon. Thank so you. I know that I know it's still a busy time, even down there in southern Indiana, where summer's been going on for a while longer than it has here in southern Wisconsin. So I really appreciate it. I thought we'd start by just having you tell us a little bit about Harvest Moon Flower Farm in your own words. I've given a little bit of an intro, but why don't you tell us uh, about the things that you think are important there? All right. Um, well, we're a pretty small farm. We farm on a little less than three acres of land. We do have quite a few hoop houses. I have a, a marvelous solar greenhouse that's off the south side of my barn, which is so sustainably efficient that I don't even need heat in there. Even if it's below zero, it's never gotten colder than 48 in there. Then I have six other hoop houses. Um, two of them are heated and the others are unheated. And they're usually in full production 12 months out of the year. Um, so we're, we are a small farm. Um, I think we kind of make up for that by um, a lot of succession planting. It's pretty rare when we have very much real estate that is either in a cover crop or in a succession crop. We're planting 12 months out of the year. Um, our markets, we, we sell the three different farmers markets during the warm season and two different winter markets during the, the winter year uh, months. And um, we also work with four different chefs in our neighboring community of Bloomington, Indiana. And we have flower subscriptions with 13 different businesses in Bloomington on a weekly basis, 50 weeks out of the year. Um, <clears throat> As well as all that, we also um, have a very um, enthusiastic wedding trade. Last year, we did 87 weddings. Um, Holy cow! Yeah, we we are we have to be really efficient here, but um, I'm really wanting to make this very small farm sustain basically two and a half families. So. Um, we work real hard to to make that happen, and the weddings are really the profit. They, they're they're really the profit margin on the farm anymore. Um, we do we usually do one wedding a year on the farm, literally here. This year, it's going to be um, an employee of mine that's worked here for I've lost track. I guess maybe 15 years. She's getting married in July here, but otherwise, we just provide all the flowers for weddings. So um, our, our primary crop are flowers. That's the bread and butter of Harvest Moon Farm. But we also do grow produce and culinary herbs and microgreens for all our chefs. 
Then we also, since we're, we're 12 months out of the year, um, we're very value-added oriented. For our flowers, we do sell what's called straight bunches of things like zinnias and sunflowers. But primarily, we come to markets with uh, finished bouquets. And um, they're pretty nice. My staff is a very artistic staff. They don't just throw together all these different colored flowers. You know, each bucket, which will have several bouquets in it, are... You know, color coordinated. You know, you have purple, blues, and whites in one. You'll have red, blues, and yellows in another. Um, yellows and whites in another. So they're they're very artistic, and people can really kind of decide what kind of mood they're in when they're looking at our display at market and decide which bouquet they want. Um, wow. In the fall, we we dry a lot of flowers and we offer a lot of dried flower wreaths. And then during the holidays, we do a lot of candle centerpieces, and we have a very, very active Christmas wreath business using evergreen wreaths with dried flower accents and pods and cones and things like that. So we keep pretty busy except for January. It's really interesting to me because as a, as a vegetable farmer, I dabbled in flowers, um, but it's really clear that that growing something just just from what you've said that growing some flowers and putting them in bouquets is a lot different than being it, I, I almost might say a, a botanical visual artist is what it sounds like you're doing almost as much as being a flower farmer because there's so much more that seems to be involved in that than just growing some zinnias I would and think some so. having watched many beginners make bouquets and having to kind of push them a little bit this way and make a suggestion that way it takes a while to get what we call the harvest moon look but they generally you know it's not rocket science um, it is something you can you can train and show people tips for how to make flowers fit into a bouquet well where that whole bouquet has a lot of integrity to it so that when you pull it out of the bucket it doesn't splay in the four cardinal directions um, right. You know, it's a well-constructed bouquet. It's a well-grown bouquet. Um, our flowers are never in straight water. They're always in some solution that aids their hydration and their vase life. Vase life is is the the golden chariot for being a successful flower farmer. Um, if your flowers look beautiful, but they die in three days, people aren't going to give you the, I generally ask a fairly premium price for our bouquets and they wouldn't, they wouldn't come back again. Um, I want them coming back. I want regular customers. They're really the base of any good business. So, um, we, we, we really watch face life. Um, you're, you're not really a professional flower grower until you have a cooler, for instance. You can't grow, a, you can't, you know, you come home from market on Saturday and you look at your field and you see you have 200 sunflowers that are ready to be harvested now. And if you don't have a market again until the following Saturday, you're in trouble. Um, you can cut those sunflowers and put them in a cooler for a week and they're going to be beautiful and still give the customer a good face life. So there's a lot to learn about this trade. Um, there's a lot to learn about being a vegetable grower. I wouldn't say I'm the best vegetable grower in town for sure. I'm a, I'm a good enough vegetable grower and I have the systems that make for, for nicely grown, sustainably grown uh, vegetables and our chefs are, are very appreciative. Um, but flowers really motivate me. They, um, it is a real visual thing. I was led to flowers because 
I just, I'm really visual and I want a, I want to walk out my front door in the morning and see a beautiful farm in front of me. Lots, I don't want to see a lot of color. If there's a lot of color out there, I, I better get on the move and get those things cut and get them marketed. But, um, I just really love beauty and symmetry and I kind of operate. That's a really big motivator for me and always has been. So I'd be really interested in hearing about your harvest and post-harvest handling process. If you're, if you're willing to share that, that, that feels, I'm interested in a couple of things. I mean, one, the mechanics of it, because I'm, I'm a big fan of post-harvest handling and vegetables. And like you said about, like you said about base life, I think shelf life is everything in the vegetable business. But the other, the other thing that I think is interesting is you, you said you can train somebody to make beautiful bouquets. And one of the things that I hear a lot from growers when we're talking about, especially about post-harvest handling activities is how you can't, people say, well, there's so many variables. I can't possibly transmit that information to somebody else. And, and yet when I think about, I mean, I, there's a lot of variables that go into making a bouquet and getting a look and color coordinating. I'd like to hear some about how you're providing that training and how that process actually plays out as you're going through the harvest and post-harvest steps. Okay. Okay. Well, to deal with the post-harvest steps, the most important thing is to have a really nice product that's growing there in the field. The next important thing with flowers is knowing when to harvest them. Um, Things like sunflowers, you're wanting to harvest a sunflower when it's just starting to lift its petals off its face when it's still kind of shaped like a C, a backward C, not where it's full-blown open, just as an example. Lilies, you don't want to harvest when the whole stem has completely opened up. You might harvest when there's one lily that's opened up that will actually add that eye appeal for your customers. But they're savvy enough at this point that they're also looking for buds that will open up throughout the week. So I'm I'm having to I'm harvesting lilies oftentimes twice a day peonies also you don't want to give them a full blown open peony you'll only get three days base life you want it to be all closed up in a marshmallow stage and you cut it then so that by the time you get to market it's just starting to open up because peonies open up really fast when they hit any kind of warmth. So that's really important, harvesting at the proper time, and that takes a lot of observation and experience. Um, then we, we, I have a golf cart here on the farm, which is just incredibly important here. I really resisted getting one some 12 years ago, and it has saved my legs and my arms. It saved my body in innumerable ways. But we fill the golf cart up with buckets of hydrofloor, which is a... Um, a floral solution that you add water to that opens up the stems, takes the dirt out, um, it has a bacteria side in it, and the flowers only stay in there for half an hour. So we cut into those buckets of, of hydrofloor you know, on the golf cart, and then I whip it back to the barn so it's getting out of the sun and the heat. And after half an hour, I move them into buckets of floral life. Floral life has three different components in it. It has a bacteria side. It also has a pH balancer and it has sugars for the flower to continue doing its thing. 
and it really makes a big difference in vase life. It makes a, a, an amazing difference in vase life. If it's a really hot day, I might whip buckets into the cooler, even if they're only in there for an hour before we come into the barn to arrange. I want to get some of the field heat out of them. Right. That's really detrimental for vase life as well. So that's our that's pretty much our harvest routine. Um, in terms of teaching someone how to make a bouquet, when I interview someone who's going to work here, which is usually just maybe two part-timers a year, um, I have a great staff, and they have stayed with me literally for decades. So I don't have that much turnover, but I do usually need one to two part-timers a year to help us out in the barn. And... Um, and I'm always looking for someone who has a nice sense of color, knows how, co- how colors go together in a complementary fashion. Um, if they have any kind of art background or, um, I don't know, even people who are really good cooks tend to also put together flowers well. Interesting. Yeah, I know, but it is true. People who are very sensual and pay attention to just a little bit of this and a little bit of that and how it alters things makes generally a pretty good bouquet maker. Now, what I lack anymore, having just trained a new person just a month ago and and um, seeing that I didn't do a great job, I, I really lack beginner's mind anymore. I don't really, I'm, I've been making bouquets for so gosh darn long that I, I skip over fundamentals because I just take them for granted that someone would know. Fortunately, my daughter, Anna, is, who's also a fantastic bouquet maker, um, is a little bit more in tune with beginner's mind. So she lets me do kind of the introductory lesson, but then she very, very um, considerately kind of moves in and starts filling in some of my gaps. And then I kind of walk away and go, yeah, I still haven't, I still don't really know how to do that anymore. Um, it's an ongoing process. Nobody's coming out with great bouquets their first couple of times. Um, but this person that we trained about a month ago, she had some really nice bouquets in the buckets this past Saturday. So I think she's getting there. Um, I think some okay. of it's also just by example. When you see, there's usually four of us working in the barn making bouquets and she can kind of see the size, the quality and the aesthetics that everybody else is coming up with. And I think ends up that kind of rubs off on them to some extent. If I see they've made a bouquet and it's sitting, it's the first bouquet in a bucket and it's not quite large enough or it doesn't have quite enough flowers in it where I think a customer will value it for the price I'm asking, I'll take it back in there and hopefully fairly tactfully, which isn't one of my greatest strengths, but I try, um, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say this needs a few more flowers and maybe they'll like, do you, do you have any suggestions? And then I can suggest a few things and, you know, I can kind of tell whether they want me to work it with them or whether they're just going to be able to take it from there. So it's, it's kind of, it takes a while, but generally they get there. And Anna's help is invaluable in that way. Um, you know, some flowers are a little bit floppy, and they have a good, like the Annabelle hydrangeas right now. They're a little bit floppy. Well, it really, really makes a difference if they have something really sturdy underneath them. So German status is blooming at the same time. So if you put a stem of German status underneath it, it kind of props it up and makes it a much stronger flower where it will hydrate well. And... Um, 
and you can really work. That would be the base of the bouquet that that you can work with. So it almost sounds like it's a matter of of providing not so much a recipe as it is a a series of hints. A lot know. of hints, right? Although there is a recipe for at least our bouquets. I mean, there's a center flower concept, and then there's filler. And then there's focal flowers around that. And then there's usually exterior flowers, flowers that hold up well with a little bit of pressure from a rubber band and also can kind of deal with having the rim of the bucket, you know, around their necks and not um, be harmed in any way by that. And also they look right. So there are some just obvious mechanics, you know, and as new things come in that my help hasn't seen before, I'll say, you know, these are flowers that we always put around the outside, or this is the center flower that we use in the middle. Um, this is what we do with this particular kind of filler to make it work best. So there you have it. That's really interesting to me. It's just, I mean, that I just bought some bouquets or a, a bouquet for my partner last weekend. And, and I was, um, as, as you describe those elements, I can actually re- very readily imagine how those fit in with the bouquet that I bought. Did you buy that a beautiful bouquet? I, of course I bought a beautiful bouquet. <laughs> was it at a farmer's market? No, it was actually just at a local nursery because I, I actually bought it on a Friday and I needed it on a Friday. It couldn't wait until Saturday. Yeah. But yeah. but I could see I could see those elements of, of that, what you call the centerpiece and then those sort of those focal flowers. So when you make a bouquet, so you walk us physically through the process of making a bouquet. Okay. Well, you grab your center flower first. Let's say I grab a sunflower and then I'm going to need some fill around that. Now, I particularly, you know, there's four of us who work in the barn and you can literally see, you can tell after a a while who made each bucket because we all have our own style. I have a woman named Gay who's been working here for like 26 years. I'm certainly not instructing Gay anymore. She's kind of my co-boss. It's certainly how she treats me and that's just fine. Um, Her style is almost always hot and vibrant colors. And she tends to put her flowers in at somewhat varying heights. Mine tend to be, I love two-toned bouquets. I like like yellows and whites or brown and whites or blues and purples and whites. Um, So you grab a center flower and then you get some filler. I like a little air in mine. I hold my bouquets looser. I think air is an element in a beautiful bouquet. Other people like them real dense. I certainly can do that for bridal bouquets if that's what they want. But I like a little air. And also, you know, being, being the owner of the farm, I'm not wanting to blast through a lot of flowers with just one bucket. I want, <laughs> right. I, yeah. You know, I want to, I want to get as many bouquets out of our cutting as I can. Um, yeah. other, uh, uh, other folks aren't as conscious of that in the barn and that's fine. Um, I used to put a limit on how many flowers you could put in a bouquet, but I gave up. That wasn't working really well because I'm, I'm only the boss because I own the place. Um, emotionally, I don't think I'm the boss around here very much. But anyway, um, and then I, I'll put in, you know, usually in bouquets, you're working in odd numbers, threes, fives, or sevens. So I'm, I'll generally put in three focal flowers around that and then... Um, a little more filler and three more focal flowers around that and then some exterior flowers, maybe plume celosia or something like that. So that would be a general formula. Now, you get some wonky stems, you know. They're not all ramrod straight, which is a good thing because I really like the flow of a stem that 
that kind of has some arch to it and all that. Um, so then the, the really important thing is how you're holding that bouquet. So it, like I mentioned before, it doesn't splay out in four different directions when you pull it out of the bucket. You really, it, that's something that you just learn in your hand. It's a tactile talent that you end up picking up, lining your stems up in your hand where they're par- parallel to each other and they're filling in each so that when you're done, you feel like you're holding a, you know, three inch diameter uh, log in a small branch or log in your hand that's really right. solid and firm. And, um, and then we band it up and, and cut all the stems even and, and put it in, put it in a bucket. You generally make five bouquets that are all the same that go in one bucket. So that bucket is really a, a nice large statement of whatever that particular combination is. And it's not uncommon for me to have people buy all five of them because they want to fill some magnificent base, you know? Um, right. So that's kind and those of, are- are those are those those are flower buckets, not not five gallon buckets? Oh yeah, five gallon buckets are way too tall. They would, they, you know, the little the, the little flowers would be just like yeah, you know, all crunched and compressed in there. Yeah, their buckets, I would say, they're about ten to twelve inches tall, and then we put them in bushel baskets for our market. Um, so they fill, they fill, um, I don't even know what size bushel basket it is, but, um, they, they look real farmy that way. Okay. And, and when you set this up, is everybody working on the same, I, uh, is it an assembly line that you have? You, no, you've got not a, a bucket line. of centerpiece. We, okay. we go out and we cut and that usually takes about two hours of cutting. And I'm the one that's usually transporting them back and forth and kind of organizing them as I go. And then um, we come into the barn and flip some music on and the barn is filled with, you know, 40 different species of flowers in buckets and everybody just goes along and decides what their first bucket's going to, you know, primary colors it's going to be. And you just move from bucket to bucket. It's not, I don't have the buckets lined up in any particular order. Um, the buckets can kind of, they were, we're in kind of, the buckets fill three sides of the barn and the barn isn't, that part of the barn is not very wide. So you don't have to walk very far to get what you want. And, and then are you sleeving your bouquets? No, I did that. I did that many years ago. Um, I didn't feel like, I felt like it, they didn't, you couldn't quite see them as well as I wanted people to see them. It was expensive to buy the sleeves. It was not in any way sustainable. It was something that people would throw away, you know, week after week after week that adds up. Um, I tried it back when I think it was 2001, cause I'm thinking of nine, nine 11. And I know I was sleeping them back then. I did it for about two or three years I can't remember all the reasons I decided I didn't really like it, but I didn't. So I do not sleep them. We wrap them um, at market in a Scott towel, dip it in water, and put that in a baggie. If they're going to be gone, not getting home right away, we put extra water in the baggie and rubber band it. And that gets people home with fairly fresh flowers. And so you're selling at farmers markets. You're doing um, you're doing these business and restaurant subscriptions. Can you tell me a little bit more about those? That sounds like a really fascinating idea for how to get your flowers out there. You bet. It does. It's great, and it also is a really good advertisement. Not to mention the farmers markets for weddings. 
So, you know, because every business, they let us put our business cards right there. So I spend zero money on advertising. I feel like our product is pretty much all over this community. And that brings us a lot of wedding work without me having to, you know, spend $900 on an ad here or there. Um, So I have 13 different businesses that have flowers every week. Some of them want one large arrangement, maybe in their front foyer of a restaurant. Um, Others are restaurants that want, you know, maybe three or four stems in a small vase on up to um, 25 tables. Um, Let's see. Some of them, you know, I'm very flexible about what price range they want to go with. You know, I have some that just want a $20 arrangement every week and some that have a $45 arrangement. Um, I have flowers in beauty salons and a menswear shop. Of course, my son owns it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, lots of restaurants. Um, We have flowers in in an art gallery. Um, let me think. I know I'm missing one other type of business that we're, oh, a clothing store, a woman's clothing store. So, and, you know, I've never even gone out to solicit for this business. Um, other owners just, they're using these other shops and decide they want flowers and they usually call me. So I haven't really had to go out and bang on any doors to make this happen. It's just happened over time. And it's a really nice gig. We we put them together. We put together all the business flowers on Tuesday. We cut on Tuesday morning. Then we do business flowers. And then we prepare for a Wednesday market. And then we deliver to the chefs and the businesses later on Tuesday afternoon. So um, the chefs, you know, they, they also, most of those businesses have flowers. And then we call them, we just called them two hours ago. We call them on Monday and talk to them on the phone with an availability list and uh, they order order and uh, we get out and get that on Tuesday morning as well so we can deliver on Tuesday afternoon. The chefs are buying vegetables and culinary herbs and microgreens. That's what we're or- that's the order we're getting on Monday. So you don't do any wholesaling of your flowers. You're not selling to anybody that resells them. Actually, I do. Um, That's probably coming up in another crazy two weeks. Um, We do wholesale zinnias. We we put out, oh gosh, I I think we have like 3,500 zinnia plants out there. And that's more than I could possibly use. So I wholesale those to a wholesale florist in July and August. And I usually end up also selling them various other things that I have in, you know, too great a supply, such as gomfrinas or um, ageratum, things like that, rubecchia. So um, we wholesale in that way. Um, I guess that's the only wholesale thing we're doing anymore. I used to, I used to sell a lot to wholesale florists but I'm not doing as much because my markets have all expanded and my customer base has expanded. So I don't need to do that as much. Yeah. No reason to go after that low dollar market unless, right. unless it's it really a to niche move quantity, in your business. I find wholesaling is just to move quantity and I'm a small farm. So I don't have a, I, you know, if, if I have a lot of quantity all the time, then I'm not really being sensitive to what I can um, sell at the, at the, 
you know, the markets that I sell at. So um, have, diversity is really a big thing on this farm. We, we grow over 110 different species of flowers throughout, you know, a 12-month year. And, um, you know, for some things, my, my row might just be 30 feet long you know, three plants wide, but 30 feet long, but that's all I really need of that particular plant um, for achieving what I want to achieve. So there's a lot of different things growing here. And like I said, the succession planting is really important because there are a number of things that are have already finished blooming. I was on the tractor yesterday just taken out lots of rows so that we can get all these trays of things that are waiting in. So that's kind of a really big thing. But diversity, you know, I've got a very diversified marketing plan with farmers markets and chefs and weddings and subscription businesses. And I have a, and I have a real diversified product between food, microgreens, culinary herbs, flowers, dried wreaths, Christmas wreaths. And also we sell really big, we sell potted perennial plants in the spring and tomato plants and things like that. And the farm is really diversified. It has a lot of different crops. So I think, I think diversity is for a small farm. It can be, it makes it a very complex little organism and it can make you crazy, but my brain likes it. <laughs> it likes it. So it's kind of how, you know, this farm in some ways is kind of a map of my brain. Um, just in terms of all my different interests botanically. I, I think, you know, we are, we're also, we also have a pretty large ginger crop. I've been growing ginger oh. now for about eight years. Um, that is just rock and roll for our chefs and at our farmer's markets in the fall when we harvest that. People go crazy for it. And I get $24 a pound for our ginger because it's so beautiful. So, you know, why am I growing ginger? It takes up a lot of space. And yes, it makes me some money, but it's just I was fascinated by the idea of growing ginger. I came across an article. It appealed to me. And, you know, I thought, well, let's give this a shot. I like to experiment with new crops every year and just see, you know, is it beautiful? Does it have a place on this farm? Does it have, if it's a flower, a good vase life, good shelf life? Does it taste good? All of those factors. And that fascinates me. I, I, you know, the whole thing is one giant science experiment anyway. And I'm not a great scientist, but I do love running all these experiments and seeing, you know, what works and what doesn't. So, I mean, you got started in, in specialty flower growing in 1988. I mean, that's kind of like the dark ages of the local really? food movement and which I feel like will also reflects in the local flower movement. Um, how did you, how did you learn your trade? I mean, that must've been a real challenge because there, it's not like Lynn Bozinski's book wasn't out yet. I don't even growing for market had maybe started publishing by 1988, but there couldn't have been a whole lot of information resources out there for yeah. you to tap into. I, I wanted to stay home with my children. I had, I have two children, boy and a girl who are now um, 30 and 32, but 
I'd given birth to them at home and I wanted to homeschool them and I certainly wanted them to be home and enjoying this beautiful natural environment. So I was looking for a way to make money at home. We didn't have very much money. Um, you know, my, my partner of, at the time was a contractor, um, not a big wig contractor, just a, a good guy contractor. And I, there needed to be a second income in the family. So I, a friend um, who's a school teacher asked me if I, and she had been selling flowers at farmer's market. She asked me if I'd be willing to work on Fridays when she was in school in September to help with another person to help her get to market on Saturday. So that was really my first experience working with flowers. Now I had been growing a large vegetable garden for years before that. And as time had gone by, I was adding more and more flowers in our vegetable garden. And my partner at the time said, you know, this is getting a little out of control. We can't eat flowers. But, um, metaphorically, we have eaten a lot of flowers over all these years as it turned out. So I went to work for this woman on Fridays and I mean, I only worked four Fridays, but it really planted the seed. I just really loved it and decided by the next spring that I was going to have a local farm. I didn't even have a tractor, have a local farmer come over and till me up a, an area for me to start a farmer's market crop. So it was real small those first couple of years. I had, at that time, Anna was three and my son was six, five and a half, six. Um, and I, I was just intending to go to the Bloomington, Indiana farmer's market. So I, I started out the following season doing that. I was at that time going out on the highways and doing a lot of wild cutting to try to augment what I didn't have, which was a lot of what I didn't have. And I <laughs> just had to kind of, I learned my trade really slowly I was oftentimes working up in the barn until midnight, one o'clock on Friday night, you know, doing, making bouquets. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I'd never do that at this point ever. Um, but it took me, you know, I was, I was slow and I was young. <laughs> I could do it. So, um, so at that time, I was just doing one farmer's market a week until the kids were, I stopped homeschooling them and they took off for high school and they didn't need me to be around half as much. Then I took on another farmer's market. And by then I was starting to learn really how, what was working and what wasn't working in terms of growing flowers. I read everything I could get my hands on. I don't remember when Lynn's book came out. Of course, as soon as it came out, I grabbed it. And I think I've been a growing for market subscriber since pretty close to the beginning. Um, the, the great thing that happened, uh, after about 10 years, I was feeling a little stale and feeling like I, hadn't, I, didn't, I, I didn't have that much more to learn. Ha, ha, ha. But I decided to take the plunge and buy a membership in the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. This is an amazing organization. <clears throat> if you really want to be a good flower grower and seller, you should join this organization. And I joined it after I'd been doing this for 10 years. And I went to the first national conference and I was scared to death. 
when I came home because I learned about so many things that I was doing so inefficiently and so poorly and wrong. I mean, I, I basically had 50% of my garden in paths. I was, you know, I was planting things in single rows for heaven's sakes. Um, just ridiculous keeping all of that weeded and mulched and not getting half the production out of that square footage. So, right. but a lot of it were, they were perennials. And I came home like, oh my gosh, I've got to revamp this whole farm. I'm doing this so ridiculously wrong. But I did. And, um, you know, I started learning about coolers and proper post-harvest care and clean buckets and um, just all, you know, the, the subscription bouquets, all kinds of ideas. So that organization really, really motivated me and gave me this whole new breeze to fly on. And I, I, I love this organization. I've been a member, I think now for, I don't know, 15 years. Um, it's, it's fantastic. And you meet other growers from all over the country, even the world. And the networking is amazing. You learn just as much from other growers as from any of the programs. Um, there's farm tours, which of course you, you know, everything, you learn so much when you can see someone else's farm, see what kind of varieties they're growing, what their weed control is, what their pest control is. So that was really, um, that was a real eye opener for me. And I, and then the kids were in high school, so I could really start plugging into this. And I, I am something of a workaholic. And so it, it just, I just, flew with it, started doing more markets, started getting weddings, and then lo and behold, local stuff and, and organic stuff started being cool. Being a farmer was cool. It was quote unquote awesome. And it sure hadn't been like that for the first 10 years. But then, you know, just that kind of, um, this trend has been so fantastic for all of us in this field. So, and it's still going strong. Farmers markets are so well attended, so appreciated in all the communities that we're in. You know, you make great friends at these farmers markets. You hear about amazing opportunities. So it's just been, it's been great. And there's no way I'd say, oh, I've learned everything I need to know in this thing. I, I can't possibly learn anything new. I mean, I'll never, I, I only know the tip of the iceberg. And that's probably how it'll be even when I die. So... I really like the story about the importance of attending those educational events. And I've got a lot invested in that because I spent years organizing the Moses organic farming conferences presentations. And, but I think, I think it really is, um, you don't know what you're missing until you're missing. And it's almost impossible to make a bad, a bad investment in your education. That's really true. That is really true. But I didn't have very much money. And, you know, going to a conference that was going to cost at the time about $1,800 took my breath away. Oh, my gosh. I spent that $1,800 that first year. I, my, my, my profits went up $10,000 the next year. And that really was true for a really long time. Now I'd say my learning curve is kind of evened out a little bit. But that steep learning curve and putting it into action this farm, this farm really grew at that point. It made a big difference. 
And I could call friends that I had met in this organization when I had questions and say, you know, I'm having problems with this crop. What do you suggest? And I'd get great suggestions that worked. Bingo. It was marvelous. Linda, I'm going to jump in here for a quick word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. When you talk to Carl Hammer, the company founder, he'll remind you that potting soil is a set of promises about a product that has to do a really hard job, produce a healthy plant in a restricted media volume. When I started farming, I focused on the cheapest ingredients I could get so that I could make my own potting soil. But as my farm grew and as I saw the challenges that we were having getting great plants out of the greenhouse, I gave it a second look and I came to the fairly obvious conclusion that success in the greenhouse depends on the success of the plants that are growing there and that just like in the rest of farming especially organic farming that success rests on the stuff that the plant is growing in the cost of your potting soil isn't insignificant but it's a small cost relative to plant material heat and labor and if the media fails the rest of the enterprise is a sunk cost so get the media that works year after year after year and grow some great transplants vermontcompost.com the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. The oldest producer of organic fertilizers in the United States, Fertrell has developed a reputation for excellent quality and service, and not just in growing crops. Fertrell also offers a full line of support for livestock producers, providing customers with recommendations for base rations that can be blended with their line of NutriBalancers, which are a special blend of minerals, vitamins, and direct-fed microbials to keep your livestock both well-fed and and well-bred. They can also custom blend minerals to meet your specific nutrition needs. In the same way that soil provides a foundation for plants, you need high-quality support for your livestock, whether that's dairy or beef cows, poultry, horses, or alpacas. I like that Fertrell isn't just a fertilizer company. They're drawing on a wider variety of knowledge and applying their principles in a broad context that provides ample opportunities to observe the validity of their approach. Fertrell, better naturally. Fertrell.com. And now back to the interview with Linda Chapman. Now, you mentioned learning even there about, about some of the very basics of, of doing the production side of flowers. So tell us a little bit about how you go about growing your flowers. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay, about almost everything we grow on this farm is um, put in as a transplant. I do very, very little direct seeding, except for things like salad mix and beets and carrots. Um, but in terms of flowers, I can't, I truly can't think of any flower I put in by seed. It's put in by plant. I like that because I get a jump on weeds. I can see it's that it's there. So I'm not going to have too many gaps, to, you know, like putting in sunflower seeds. You can have big, big gaps because the birds had a good feeding on them and you don't know it for another week and a half. And then you've lost a week and a half and you have big gaps. Um, so everything goes in as a transplant. Um, the next time uh, this year, I started using biodegradable paper. I don't like plastics at all. I had a plastic layer a couple of years ago that I invested in, but a good portion of this farm is on a slight slope, and I had a really hard time um, adjusting the plastic layer to the slope, and and not it was just it just made me curse wildly. And it, it was no fun. So I abandoned that, and I've gone to biodegradable paper, which I like a lot. 
this year we went with it big time. And wouldn't you know it, this June has been the wettest June in the history of Indiana, I believe they're saying at this point. And I'm seeing my papers biodegrading a lot faster than I wanted it to. But the plants at this point are also getting pretty big. Um, I buy in, I, I'm a big proponent of mulch. I think that any plant that's mulched is just going to give you the best it's got. So I buy in about 250 bales of straw every July, and I have it winter over because I've made the mistake many times, unfortunately, of putting down fresh straw on the ground and then finding that I'm growing wheat or rye everywhere. So I now let it um, get real wet and winter over. And then when we put it down in the the following spring, it's kind of gooky and gross, but it's also really dense. So you can kind of put it down in books. And that really helps to, um, you know, keep, yeah, I don't really like hose. I, I, my hose um, are used maybe five hours in a whole year. So I hate hose and I don't have time to be hoeing a whole lot. I also don't have any mechanical cultivation. So we mulch the whole farm and because the farm has been getting a little bigger in the last couple of years and it's expensive to buy the mulch and it's expensive for the labor. So I always feel good about it because I hire all the high schoolers that need, need work in April and May. Um, the place is more or less mulch, but the biodegradable paper really kind of helped. It meant we didn't mulch around the plants. We just mulched all the paths. Right. And um, we have had a lot of weed problems this year because we've, we've had 12 inches of rain and we're not even done with the month of June, although I guess that's tomorrow. Um, <laughs> and it has created a lot of weed pressure. But we've just been weeding a mulch. And today we, we spent another four hours weeding and the farm looks pretty good. And I hope we can start drying out. Um, fortunately, the plants are getting pretty big at this point. So they'll, they'll shade out weeds. I like it. I like a pretty clean farm. Um, and I'll, I'll work an 18-hour day just to get it there if I feel like it has to be. And I've got this wedding coming up in three weeks. So, you know, I want it to look good. Because um, there's an interest in that. Yeah, nobody wants a wedding in a weed field. Well, it's it's always so motivating. You know, oftentimes we'll have a farm to fork dinner here or something going on in late July or August. And it, it motivates me to keep it looking good. And then by August, it doesn't matter that much anymore. You know, it's we're, we're moving towards the home game, at the home plate at that point. Um, but, yeah, the wedding is a motivator right now, making sure – it looks nice, but frankly, it's just me. It's just my compulsiveness about wanting it to look good because it makes me happy. So everybody knows that, but we pretend it's because there's an event coming up. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but they know it's like me. That. You know, everything on the farm. I mean, when the day's over, I want the barn really clean. I want the greenhouses clean. Everybody's just used to that. Then when we start a day, we're starting fresh slate, and it feels right to me. Um, so... Uh, now I forgot the question. <laughs> um, I actually, I think you, I think you answered okay. it. So um, we were just talking about how you were growing your flowers. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd actually like to, I'm going to ask you about winter growing now. So, okay. um, so one of the things that, that I found really interesting is that you're doing flower production 
Am I, am I right about that? You're doing flower production year round? I am, but it is much reduced in January and February. Um, I do a lot more vegetable production in the winter, a lot more. I love winter vegetables. And because I'm growing an unheated, um, most of the flowers generally, okay, what's happening here is that the flowers for January, February, and, and into March, I have two heated greenhouses that I keep at 38 degrees. So basically I have two unfreezing greenhouses. And in those, I can grow some winter flowers. The other hoop houses that, that are unheated, they also have a lot of space dedicated to them for flowers. But those flowers won't give me blooms until March, April, and May. So they really, really fill in, especially April and May. There's so many different holidays. And you've got Easter and Mother's Day and high school graduation and you know, um, college graduation, even Memorial Day, most of those flowers that we're selling at that time are coming out of the hoop houses. And um, so they, they, they just sit in the ground all winter and then are really strong and sturdy for spring flowers for us. Um, in the, for the winter flowers, I'm growing things that like low light and cool temperatures, things like stock. I grow a lot of lilies. I generally grow the lilies in crates so I can move them into different different um, microclimates. You know, maybe they, I want to push them along a little faster. I'll put them in the solar greenhouse where it's warmer, or I want them to right. slow down. I'll put them in the back of a hoop house that's heated, but it's cooler than the solar greenhouse. So I like to have movable crops in the wintertime so I can kind of time them out a little better. Uh, tulips and crates for the same reason. Um, we grow we grow ranunculus, anemones, freesia. Those are all in one of the heated greenhouses. So I'm getting those crops usually February, late February. It depends on when I got them in. So, but in the winter, I also a lot of the space is dedicated to winter carrots, which I think are like the best in the whole world, and kale, chard, salad, spinach. Um, that and microgreens. Microgreens are really, really big for us from November through April. They're easy to grow when it's a cool environment. They're a pain in the neck to grow at this time of year. It's just they, they take so much management. So I have a, a pretty vibrant business in microgreens and sell quite a few at the markets and to my chefs during the cool season. Okay. And, and you're down at about 39 degrees of latitude, I think. What, what zone are you in? What kind of low temperatures are you experiencing in the wintertime? Well, that's really changing. Um, but we are in zone six. Um, the last two winters have been uh, abundant snow and pretty cold. Um, not uncommon to be below 10 quite a few weeks in the winter. It seemed to me in the old days, you know, a decade ago, we didn't have as much snow and they were warmer winters. They were ugly. They were gray and muddy and, you know, lingering around 25, 30 degrees. Now they're real winters, which I love. Um, But um, 
and and it doesn't seem to affect the growing. Now, I think we we we're, we have a lot of gray days here in the winter time, so things grow pretty slowly. Sometimes we all, you know, bemoan the lack of sun and how we thought something would be ready, but it's not because there wasn't any sun all week. But you know, I think I think snow is so reflective. Having so much snow is actually probably. Now that I just think about it, I, having it all around hoop houses, I think it helps. Um, even on a gray day, it's still there's a lot more light being re- refracted into the greenhouse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd certainly say that that makes a difference yeah. uh, in my experience. Well, you're, so, you're certainly a uh, winter, you, you were a winter grower too up there, weren't I, you? I did my fair share. Yep. Yep. Up here and around. And we're at about 43 mm. is where my farm was. So another, another four degrees North of you. So we had a little bit shorter in the wintertime and, and quite a bit colder. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we had, you know. we had a good two weeks that were below zero this past winter. Um, it's not very much fun to live in it in the house, but it's, um, it, it, I don't know. I, I, I still, I, I love a good winter, a real winter. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And especially when you've got a greenhouse to go exactly. to. Exactly. Makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, or a hot tub. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it makes all the difference in the world, too. So t- tell me a little bit about your employment situation and, and, and what I've seen you refer to as, as your broader farm family. Because you've got, you talk about employees that have been with you for 15 and 24 years. I mean, that's... That's pretty, that's an amazing amount of time to have in any business to have an employee stay with you, much less in, in the high intensity world of farming. Really? Well, yeah, I'm just, I am so lucky. Um, I met this woman named Gay when she was going to give birth to her, I think it was her third child. She, she, she had six. And, um, and I was pregnant with my son and she had a son and they became friends. And I started this farm a couple of years later and she started working for me and she is truly, um, just a magnificent color, um, expert and loves the heat and loves working hard. And um, she's also a midwife and still is. There are times when, you know, she'll call me on a Friday morning and say, you're not going to like this. Well, you're at a birth, aren't you? And then we'll, we'll have to put in a longer day. But um, then she was, she was one of the midwives at my two children's births. And then I was also a midwife before I was a farmer. And so I was there for her last three children's births. The last one being Carmen, who ended up... Um, being one of the best workers I've ever had on this farm. So <clears throat> Gay uh, Gay worked here for a number of years, and then um, a house in the back of the woods, right next to, adjacent to the farm, went up for sale, and she and her husband bought it and um, moved into it. So they're also neighbors and have been neighbors for about 15, 20 years now. Carmen started working here on the farm when she was seven years old, just washing buckets and filling them with water. And um, she just, every year, there were more things that she could do. And so she's been working here since she was seven, and she's now 23, about to get married. Um, She's formidable. She's absolutely formidable. I mean, 
I'm so lucky because I've trained, you know, this is the only farm she's ever worked on. So she's trained all the systems around here. She knows just about as much as I do, not about the crops themselves, but about how we do everything around here. She's fast. She's efficient. She's really strong. And my daughter, Anna, um, she started working full time on the farm five years ago when she graduated from college. And she is a, an amazing floral designer um, and, and is, is very observant and is learning all the different systems. I'd say she, she pretty much has them like Carmen does, although she doesn't do them as often as Carmen does because she's Anna's oftentimes in the barn doing all the designing for, flower, for weddings and markets while Carmen's out kind of covering our field bases. And, and harvesting for chefs and things like that. So I'm at Gay and Carmen, that are a mother-daughter combination, and myself and Anna. And then I fill in with some part-timers that come out on Tuesdays and Fridays to help us harvest and arrange for market. And like I said, that's usually one or two part-timers that I have. Um, Anna's partner, Ben, um, often comes out as well and is, helps me with the, the heavy lifting, the mechanical things, put in some drainage for me last week and um, does a lot of chainsawing and things like that. Um, and he's so wonderful and helpful as well. So we really are kind of a big team, a big family team because uh, Carmen's now living in town with her fiance, but you know, gay is my neighbor. I could, I could, if I yelled really loud, she might hear me back there. And I think they feel like the farm, you know, they've been on this farm since it really started. They feel like it's theirs. Um, and I'm happy that they do. And, uh, you know, Carmen and my daughter Anna get along beautifully together, and I think they're both anticipating being partners to some extent here on the farm as time goes by, just like in many ways Gay and I are partners. Gay doesn't, she only works two days a week here, and will pinch it on a third day if I need her for a wedding, but she's been here for so long. She just kind of knows knows what's going on and will, you know, I'll hear her telling people what to do if I'm not around and that's fine with me. And she tells me what to do and that's not always fine with me, but I listen. (laughs) Well, I think, I think it's really important to have somebody on the farm who, who is, uh, well, you know, if not equal in authority or equal in power, at least as is equal in engagement and, um, yeah. Investment. I, yeah, I think investment is the term I was looking for that, that person who, well, the person who really can tell you that you need to do something differently. I mean, that's almost when you know, you've got the right person is when that's right. you might, you might not like to hear it, but you know that what they're, what they're saying probably has value and is probably worthy of consideration. Yeah. And that they really care. They're not just seeing this as a job they clock into and clock out of and don't think about anymore. They really care. They're really invested in it. They, they, love it. They love going to the markets. They, you know, they see what people like and what they don't like. And, um, they get married here, you know, (laughs) it's, it's stuff like that. It's just all this extra, all these extra wonderful things that happen when you have a beautiful farm that just make me happy. Now, when you and I met at the Indiana small farms conference, um, 
one of the things that, that interested me in your story is that you were talking about beginning to prepare to pass your business on to your daughter. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about what, what you've done in kind of the beginnings of that process? I can tell you what I haven't done, but what I intend to do. Okay. <laughs> I intended to do more last winter in terms of moving this along and it just didn't happen. What, what I intend to do, I, I have, you know, I, I plan way far ahead. I'm just kind of made that way. I did, um, just close two weeks ago on nine acres adjacent to the farm. So I have this new plot of land that I am seeing as a retirement spot for myself. I'm currently living in the family home. I'm, my partner and I aren't together anymore for the last two years. So I'm in the family home and it's a lovely little house right at the edge of the woods, um, owner built and it's, it's really sweet. But I just turned 60 this past May, and this is hard on the body. This, this work is hard on the body. If I was to give any a beginning farmer who wants to stay in it for the long range good advice, it would be save early so you have, a, you have options when you turn 60 because it's hard on the body, and I'm really healthy, and I'm real strong still, but I don't want to use, uh, I can tell my vitality is not what it used to be, and I don't want to use it all up in my 60s so that I'm just a decrepit 70 and 80-year-old. So I'm trying to figure out my exit strategy, and my daughter loves this business and so does Carmen. She loves this business and they're both well suited to it. What I want to do, because I have already gotten a vision in my head, I need to find out what their vision is. Um, being the kind of person that I am, I could just kind of bulldoze them and say, this is what we're going to do and la, 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 la. But I could create, I'm sure I would create some resentment. So I planned on, and I did get a rudimentary one together. I plan on, on um, giving them both a long, long questionnaire with as many questions as I can think of that are based on where do you see your life being in one year, five years, 10 years? I, I don't think I could ask for much more than that. And where they see the farm in their life plan, as well as where they see the farm fitting in with their partner's lives and children's lives. And I, I, I have written out a lot of things off the top of my head, but I need to refine it and I need to get it to them. And I plan to, within the next couple of months, have them answer it very thoughtfully and carefully and then sit down and talk it all over. And hopefully the next step will be revealed to me. I have not done any advising about what kind of legalities I have to look into in terms of transferring this property to my daughter in this house. I need to build, uh, I'm hoping, to, I'm planning, I'm building a very um, small, compact, energy efficient house over on this new property. And Anna and Ben and will hopefully, they would move into this family house, which would be very appropriate and hopefully have many, many, many babies. Um, <laughs> yeah, she would laugh too. Um, yeah. Well, no, just, well, and, and it's, you'd be in the perfect position and 
you know what? Everybody, you know, every farmer needs, uh, if you've got kids, you need family close by. Makes all the difference in the it world. It does. And I mean, in the old days, the the kids playing out here in the fields, you know, and making ramps with their bikes or building forts in the woods. And of course, they worked a lot, too, on the farm. It was small at that time, but they were my molters, you know, and I could get a whole I could get a whole posse of eight and nine year olds out here that would work for three or four hours for a banana split. You know, the, the labor cost was really low back then. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but they, it helped them learn a real good work ethic. And I know Anna says she just had the best childhood anybody could have. And I know that's what she would like for her own children. You know, great advantage having grandma living right over the hill. That would be pretty nifty as well. So anyway, I need to see what they really want out of their lives and what they, what kind of vision they have for the farm and its future um, and how they, what they want to do when they do have children, because I don't, I could not have managed this farm with um, being an active mother, it would have, I would have felt too torn between being a good mother or being a good farmer. It would have been too much. It's, this has gotten to be too complex. So do they need to, do they want to see it scale back during that time? Maybe they won't even know until they have kids, but just want them to consider things like that. Meanwhile, for myself, because the farm has so many different accounts, I can see saying to both of the girls, okay, you guys do all the farmer's markets. I'm done. I'm not going to work them. I'm not going to, I'll go and do a market for you if you want me to, you know, I'll pinch hit any time, but I want those two days off and, and start exploring some other things in my life that I haven't really had much of a chance to do in the last number of decades. Um, but I'll keep the chefs and the business subscriptions and the weddings and then drop one of those and just keep on kind of passing it off and we'll just kind of play it by ear at that point. So I have some kind of income, but I'm not working six, seven days a week. It would be really, really sweet to get down to where I'm working three days a week, still having an income, still being real involved, being a consultant, but not having to do all of, you know, having to pinch, do all the heavy lifting. So that's kind of about all I've got in my pocket on that one. I know Ann and Ben are very eager to take this place over. Um, and I think they do a beautiful job. And Carmen, at this point, Carmen's mom and dad are planning on building a small house um, in the back of the woods here on their property, but far removed from the log cabin they're currently living in. And they're talking about Carmen and her fiance moving into that house. So Wonderful. we could be a two generation neighborhood here, which would be really fun. That'd be really fun. I like how it looks. We'll see how it works out. And I just love the idea that what you're doing is working on figuring out what people want before you get down into the nitty gritties of how things are going to be structured. I think so often we get stuck in any kind of a negotiation process, regardless of, you know, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, whether you're talking about hiring somebody for a job or passing on the farm or getting a divorce or whatever, people get caught up in the details before they really take a chance to think about the 
what what is it that we all want out of this yeah. and then how can we work towards that i just i think that's so neat that you're you're approaching it from that standpoint well it just seems like the wise you know it just seems wise i'm trying to be wise cuz this is hard to do with my one little brain when i had a partner i could bounce ideas back and forth with another brain that cared but that's not the case now so i'm being a little more cautious and careful about you know it's it's just not all about me and having a vision that's pretty much how this whole farm thing started i had no idea it would be what it's become my vision at the time was much more modest but you know, I, I made that vision come true and raise the kids here without them having to be in daycare or school for quite a few years. And that vision came true. And then just one, one season at a time, new things arose and new opportunities happened. And this is, you know, and it's become what it is. Nothing that I imagined, but just step, I put, you know, certain pieces in place at the beginning and stayed engaged with the process. And it's just, it's just evolved and that's cool. So that's how I kind of see this retirement and transition. It will, you know, my vision of it right now, it probably isn't very accurate. It's going to, especially when I get feedback from everybody else, I might get feedback that just stuns me like, Oh my gosh, how is that going to be possible? Is that too idealistic? Maybe, maybe not, but I kind of want to see, I mean, I I don't want to put all of my chess pieces out on the board until I see what everybody else wants as well, because what I want might not have anything to do with what they want, and maybe I can accommodate what they want. So I want to know what they want um, and not be a bulldog about it. Yeah. That's great. So Linda, we wrap up all of these podcast interviews with, uh, with, uh, what I call the lightning round. So I have a couple of questions that we ask everybody that comes on the show. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. So the first, the first of those is what is your favorite tool on the farm? Mm, golf cart. <laughs> golf carts are revolutionary in terms of really getting around and being able to look at the, you know, take a ride at the beginning of the day and make notes and really see what's going on and not using your body up. Um, hmm, let's see. Now, hmm? Do you, do you have an electric golf cart yeah, or is yours a gas powered Quiet. It's quiet. So it's totally silent. So it's, it's very peaceful and it has a, you know, it has a little cart on the back of it. It's not a golf cart with seats in the back. It has a, a platform that we can, it, it does everything. It moves straw bales. It moves big mounds of weeds. It moves flowers. It moves, t- you know, tools. I can hang a phone on it. I can have all my tools in it. And, um, it's just, if, if I'm, you know, I can jump on and off of it. It's, it's a marvelous tool. And then I know that you've got 110 species on your farm uh, of crops that you're growing, but what's your favorite? Dahlias. <clears throat> Dahlias are my favorite. And winter tell carrots. Tell me a little bit about, and, and winter carrots. So tell me a little bit about growing the dahlias. How, how, those are a tuberous crop, right? They are. They are. And they are very labor intensive. You have, in, in our zone, we have to dig them out every year and store them above freezing. 
Um, we put 300 dahlias in this year. That's a lot of work in the fall. Um, but they're worth it. They are so beautiful. They're, you know, they'll start blooming here in July and August, and that's fine. But they somehow get some kind of a effervescent shimmer to them when the days get shorter in the fall. And they just go bonkers in the fall. So having a bouquet that's filled with all these shimmering iridescent flowers, the colors in dahlias are, are really phenomenal as well. You get a true deep purple or a true deep red. Um, they're just, they're just a phenomenal flower. They're beautiful. They don't have the greatest face life, about five to six days, but they're so beautiful. I've never had anybody complain about that. So they're my favorite. You know what I, you know what I love is that you didn't even have to think about it. <laughs> well, that was great. Um, and then finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Oh boy. Uh, save early. <laughs> save, you know, I didn't start saving for retirement. I wasn't thinking about retirement, but I really think that's really smart. Start saving early, especially with the economy the way it is, social securities, possible, um, you know, I, I don't know how those guys in Washington are really going to be dealing with our money as time goes by. I think saving early. Farming is hard on the body. It is really hard on the body. And thinking you're going to retire from it. Of course, I know I have farmer friends who are in their 80s that are still doing it. But they're, you know, they're doing it at a pretty reasonable level at that point in time. Um, but you, I think you really do want to start slowing down by 60, 62. You really do if you want to have a vibrant older age. So... Yeah. You have to save. Um, I wish I'd known that when I was younger. Um, other than that, another thing would be you don't have to have acres and acres and acres to make a, a solid living. You're never going to get rich, but you can have a solid living on two acres of land if you're smart about how you manage it and you and you learn your trade well and um, market it well, you could, you can, it's a great way to raise a family. It's a fantastic way to raise a family. And it's a real gratifying line of work. Um, so you don't have, you know, as a beginning farmer, you don't have to have 20 acres, which is hard to afford at this, in this, in these times. Um, two, three yeah. acres, if it's got good soil and, you know, it's not in the woods, you can make a good living off of that. Linda, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much. You're a good interviewer, Chris. I've enjoyed it as well. <laughs> You're very sweet, Linda. I mean, I, it's, you know what? I don't think I'd be half as good if I didn't have such great guests. They're <laughs> really wonderful. So thanks for, thanks for coming up and grabbing me at the Indiana Small Farms Conference and saying, hey, I'm a flower farmer. Yeah. This, you know, I've got, a, I've got a story to tell. I really appreciate that. Well, you're welcome. Oh. I think I, I actually did that because I was like, so why don't they ever have any flower farmers talking at the Moses conference? I knew you were somewhat involved in that. I guess not anymore, but you were. Not anymore. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, I don't understand why I would like to go to the Moses conference, but there's, and there's a lot of great things going on there that I would totally enjoy, but it's like, but give me a, a flower motivation to come. So 
See, but now, now you can't ask that at least about the farmer to farmer podcast. So <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You've done your thing. You've done your part. Thank you so much, Linda. You're welcome, Chris. Good luck to you. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 21 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Chapman. If you like what you hear, think about signing up for my newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga at farmer to farmer podcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. And keep weathering the weather. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. <laughs>